Welcome, listeners. My name is Jen Schwab, and I'm an estate planning attorney in Denver, Colorado. And this is Deadly Testament, a true crime podcast that examines the dark side of inheritance and life insurance. Each episode tells the story of a murder or murders motivated by greed. From spouses who kill for money, to relatives who plot against each other, to strangers who target wealthy victims, Deadly Testament exposes the secrets and lies behind these crimes. Join us as we unravel the mysteries and uncover the evidence that led to justice. I now present to you Episode 3, The Giggling Granny. In late September 1954, Samuel Doss of Tulsa, Oklahoma, went to the hospital with stomach pains. He was diagnosed with a severe digestive tract infection and was admitted for treatment. On October 5th, he returned home with his wife, Nanny. A few days later, on October 10th, after eating a prune cake baked by his wife, Samuel became sick again, and sadly, the 58-year-old minister died the next day. Samuel's doctor, N.Z. Schwelbein, was concerned and stated that he didn't know what could have led to Samuel's death. He told Nanny he wanted to conduct an autopsy, to which Nanny enthusiastically agreed. She said, of course there should be. It might kill somebody else. The autopsy revealed that Samuel's stomach contained enough arsenic to kill 10 men. When the police informed Nanny about this, she appeared shocked and distressed, gasping, how could such a thing happen? When police later questioned 49-year-old Nanny Doss about whether she had poisoned her husband, she stared at the police with a doe-eyed expression and said in a stupefied tone, my conscience is clear. But was it really? Nanny Doss was born Nancy Hazel on November 4, 1905, in Blue Mountain, Alabama, to Louisa, Lou for short, and James Hazel. Nanny was one of five kids in the family, and their father, James, was controlling and abusive. The kids were forbidden from going to school and instead forced to stay home and work on the family farm. As a result, Nanny's education was severely lacking. When Nanny was a small child, seven or eight years old, the family traveled by train to visit relatives in southern Alabama. When the train came to a sudden stop during the trip, Nanny hit her head on a metal bar in front of her seat. This head injury led to Nanny suffering from headaches, blackouts, and depression over the following years. Nanny later claimed that this head injury caused her to be mentally unstable. As an older child and teenager, Nanny enjoyed reading her mother's romance magazines, especially the personal ads, also called a Lonely Hearts column, where people looking for love published a small blurb about themselves and what kind of person they might be looking for. This was how people met people back in the days before internet dating apps became a thing. If you've ever heard the song Escape, the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes, that song talks about the back and forth personal ads between a man and a woman looking for new love. Spoiler alert, they were already in a relationship with one another and apparently never talked about anything at all because it turned out they had way more in common than they previously thought. Never mind the problematic issue of both of them trying to cheat on one another with a stranger from the personal ads. Anyway, Nanny loved those personal ads and dreamed of her own future romances. 
Unfortunately, Nanny's father, James, was not about to let that happen, forbidding Nanny and her sisters from attending dances or social events. James also forbade Nanny and her sisters from wearing makeup and attractive clothing, as he believed it would lead to them being sexually abused by men. So, yeah, he was a but-what-was-she-wearing kind of guy. Sadly, but not surprisingly, Nanny and her sisters, in fact, were repeated victims of child sex abuse. By the way, Nanny had a brother, too, but apparently he got to do whatever he wanted because he was a boy. I would say it was due to it being the early 1900s, but let's be real here. That hasn't changed a whole lot in the last century. As a teenager, Nanny was allowed to go to work and got a job at a linen factory. She soon met a boy at the factory named Charles Braggs, who went by Charlie, and after knowing one another for only four or five months, 18-year-old Charlie wanted to get married to 16-year-old Nanny. Despite his apparent fears about Nanny attracting men, James encouraged her to marry Charlie. Nanny went ahead with the marriage, and much to Nanny's chagrin, Charlie was a package deal with his single mother. Charlie's mother moved in with the young couple and dictated much of their lives. Between 1923 and 1927, Nanny would give birth to four daughters. Neither Nanny nor Charlie seemed happy within the marriage. Charlie said Nanny was a pretty girl and lots of fun, and their marriage started off pretty well, but after a couple of years, she, quote, started going off, unquote. Charlie would disappear from the house for days on end, and both Nanny and Charlie suspected one another of infidelity. Nanny turned to excessive alcohol and tobacco use to cope with her unhappiness. In 1927, two of Nanny and Charlie's daughters died shortly after eating breakfast. Authorities at the time ruled the deaths were due to accidental food poisoning. After receiving an anonymous warning not to eat any food prepared by his wife, Charlie took their firstborn daughter, Melvina, and fled, leaving Nanny behind with their newborn baby, Florine, and Charlie's mother. Charlie claimed he left because he was frightened of Nanny but I guess not frightened enough to take the baby or his mother with him? Soon after Charlie left, his mother died. There's no information about what she died of or any kind of investigation, but it seems that there was no investigation into her death. In the summer of 1928, Charlie returned with Melvina, but he also brought with him a girlfriend, Beatrice Killingsworth, a divorcee with her own child. Nanny and Charlie soon got a divorce, and Nanny moved back to her parents' house with Melvina and Florine, taking a job at a local cotton mill to help support herself and her children. About six months later, Charlie married Beatrice, and the two lived happily ever after, having several children together and both living well into their 70s. They were certainly lucky in many ways, not the least of which being that they both escaped Nanny's wrath. In 1929, at age 24, Nanny met Robert Franklin Harrelson, who went by Frank, through a personal ad. That's right, those personal ads she loved so much as a kid helped her find a new man. Frank sent Nanny poetry to woo her, and she responded by sending him dirty letters and photos. I guess he liked that, because they were married in 1929, and Nanny moved with Malvina and Florine to Jacksonville, Alabama to live with Frank. 
As anyone who's ever tried online dating probably knows, written correspondence won't usually tell you everything you need to know about someone. So it's a good idea to try to get to know them better in person before you decide to marry them. As it turns out, Frank was a violent alcoholic, and it didn't take long for Nanny to realize that a marriage started with a personal ad wasn't necessarily going to be the lifelong love affair she had dreamed of while reading her mother's romance magazines. Nonetheless, she stayed with Frank for 16 years, and in those 16 years, she became a grandmother when Melvina had her first child, Robert, in 1943. Two years later, Melvina gave birth to a baby girl. Nanny visited Melvina and the new baby in the hospital, and while Melvina slept, Nanny rocked the baby. Within an hour, the baby was dead. Melvina believed she saw Nanny stab the newborn in the head with a stick pin, but of course, this seemed a horrific thing for a grandmother to do to her newborn granddaughter, and the people Melvina told about what she saw convinced her it was simply a drug-induced hallucination. Doctors were unable to say just why the baby had died. Six months later, Malvina and her husband had split up, and Malvina started dating a soldier. Nanny didn't approve of the relationship, and Malvina left to go visit her father, leaving her two-year-old son Robert with Nanny. Robert died of asphyxiation from unknown causes while Nanny was watching him. Nanny would go on to collect on a $500 life insurance policy she had taken out shortly before Robert's death. For whatever reason, Robert's death was ruled an accident and no one looked into why his grandmother had taken out an insurance policy on the toddler's life. It seems that again, no one could fathom a grandmother intentionally killing her grandson. A short time later, one night in 1945, after a night of partying with friends who had just returned from serving in World War II, Frank came home to Nanny and raped her. The next day, Nanny poured rat poison into one of Frank's hidden jars of whiskey. He died on September 15, 1945, but his death was officially ruled to be the result of either food poisoning or some other ailment. So let's just recap. Within less than a year, Nanny's husband and two grandchildren all died, all while she was present and providing care to them, and no one gave it a single thought. Despite her second marriage not working out, so to speak, Nanny liked using personal ads to meet men, so she went back to it once she found herself alone again. In 1947, she began corresponding with a recently widowed man from Lexington, North Carolina, Arlie Lanning. They married just two days after meeting in person. Remember what I said about written correspondence not being the best way to get to know someone? Yeah, about that. Nanny became a well-respected member of her community in North Carolina, joining a local Methodist church where she was an active member. Arlie, on the other hand, was a heavy drinker and a big fan of prostitutes, and this was common knowledge among Nanny's friends and neighbors who sympathized with her plight. Community members considered Nanny the perfect wife and a wonderful person, and Nanny worked hard to maintain that image. In the summer of 1950, Nanny's sister Dovey became ill and bedridden and needed someone to help care for her. Being the wonderful person people believed she was, Nanny left to stay with Dovey in Alabama. 
but shortly after Nanny's arrival, Dovey died. Nanny later admitted that she poisoned Dovey, but at the time, Dovey's cause of death was determined to be the result of her illness. Nanny returned home to North Carolina and resumed her charade as the perfect wife. Arlie kept up his bad behaviors, and a year and a half later, Nanny finally decided enough was enough. On February 16, 1952, after several days suffering from vomiting, dizziness, and other symptoms, Arlie died. With a flu virus going around and Arlie being a heavy drinker, doctors decided not to do an autopsy and instead ruled his death the result of heart failure. In actuality, Nanny had slipped rat poison into his food. Even after telling friends and neighbors that he had been fine until she fed him prunes and coffee for breakfast, they were not at all suspicious of her and instead treated her as a grieving widow who needed extra care and kindness. Now, let me just say, I know that these were different times, but prunes and coffee? I don't know about you, but if I ate that for breakfast, I would absolutely be in the bathroom about 10 minutes later. Even without rat poison in it, it just seems like a breakfast of laxatives isn't a very good idea. Anyway, after Arlie's death, Nanny found out that Arlie had a will, but in it he left his house to his sister instead of Nanny. Side note here, Arlie had two sisters, Mary and Ethel, and try as I might, I can't find any information regarding which sister inherited the property. So even though I really, really like to identify people by their actual names, unfortunately here, I'm just going to have to call her Arlie's sister. Anyway, when Nanny found out that the house was going to Arlie's sister, she was furious, but she knew there was no way to change it. So she packed up her television and drove to stay with Arlie's mother, Sarah, in a nearby town. Mysteriously, or not, Arlie's house caught fire right after Nanny left, and within a few hours, the house was nothing but ash and rubble. A few weeks after the fire, Nanny received the check from the homeowner's insurance to cover the loss from the fire, but it really belonged to Arlie's sister as he left the house to her. Unfortunately, before Arlie's sister could come pick up the check, Sarah passed away in her sleep one night. Because she was elderly, no one looked into it, and her death was deemed to be the result of natural causes. Nanny cashed the insurance check illegally, packed up her television again, and left town. But it didn't take long for her to move on romantically. Nanny decided to try a correspondence dating service this time around instead of the personals. And the service she picked was called the Diamond Circle Club. Nanny paid $15 to join and quickly found herself a new man. Richard Lewis Morton, known as Chief by friends and family, was a recent widower and retired salesman living in Emporia, Kansas. Ever the hopeless romantic, after a brief long-distance courtship through the mail, Nanny relocated to Kansas, and by October 1952, Nanny and Chief were married. Chief was a handsome man who had been quite successful in life, and he treated Nanny like a queen. Unfortunately for Chief, Nanny was dissatisfied, and just two months after the wedding, Nanny was back in the local personal ads looking for a new man. It seems bold of her to be placing personal ads in the newspaper of the town where she lived, 
But the thing about those personal ads is that they were anonymous. There was usually a code number, and if you wanted to respond to the ad, you'd have to respond through the newspaper until one person placed an ad with instructions on where and when to finally meet in person. That's how the narrative in the Pina Colada song works, too. Unfortunately, as Nanny planned her escape from her happy home, there was a wrench thrown into her plan. Nanny's mother, Lou, decided to come live with Nanny and Chief. This certainly wasn't going to make it easy for Nanny to step out on Chief, so after a few days, Nanny solved her little problem. Lou began to experience excruciating intestinal pain and died on January 3, 1953. By now, I'm sure you know, no one looked into it, and Lou's death was deemed to be the result of an illness or food poisoning. Four months later, in May 1953, Chief died after drinking coffee at home, which was laced with rat poison. Once again, the death was deemed to be the result of food poisoning. So let's just pause here for another recap. The death count is now at 10. Two of Nanny's daughters died of food poisoning after eating Nanny's food. Nanny's infant granddaughter died right after birth while in Nanny's care. Nanny's two-year-old grandson, Robert, died of asphyxiation while in Nanny's care. Nanny's second husband, Frank, died of food poisoning after drinking whiskey at home. Nanny's sister, Dovey, died while in Nanny's care. Nanny's third husband, Arlie, died of heart failure after eating Nanny's food. Arlie's mother, Sarah, died in her sleep while Nanny was living with her. Nanny's mother, Lou, died of food poisoning after eating Nanny's food. And Nanny's fourth husband, Chief, died of food poisoning after eating Nanny's food. Now, I know back in those days, food science and safety wasn't really as advanced as it is today, and there was plenty of carelessness surrounding food handling back in those days. Hell, some of our parents and grandparents probably still do things like defrosting meat on a countertop all day or not cooking chicken and pork to save temperatures or touching raw meat and then touching everything else in the kitchen without washing their hands properly. But that's 10 people dead in Nanny's life while in her presence and or care and half of them after consuming food or drink that she prepared in her home. Anyone who was paying attention had to be suspicious at this point, right? How could they not be? So Nanny, still a hopeless romantic, found herself single once again and was soon on the prowl. She wasted no time nailing down husband number five, Samuel Doss, whom Nanny met on a bus ride to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Only a month after Chief's death in June 1953, Nanny was remarried to Samuel. Samuel was a widower when he met Nanny, having lost his entire family in a tornado in Carroll County, Arkansas, while he was away visiting his brother for the day in a nearby town. Samuel, a United Baptist minister now living in Oklahoma, was very conservative and didn't approve of the romance novels and magazines Nanny liked to read. He was also apparently quite the penny pincher. Nanny was not having any of this, and again, let me mention that getting married to someone you barely know simply is not a good idea. So Nanny left Samuel in Oklahoma and returned to Alabama. This could have been the luckiest thing that ever happened in poor Samuel's life. Unfortunately, he begged her to come back, 
promising to loosen up on the purse strings and even took out two life insurance policies on himself, naming Nanny as the beneficiary. Now, I just have to say, I think it's pretty obvious that Nanny had been previously demanding the life insurance policies, or at least hinting to Samuel that she felt she would be left in the lurch if he died. Maybe she even told him that she'd been widowed three times before and was afraid of financial instability if it happened again. Because I can't imagine that if somebody's complaining that you're a cheapskate, that your response to that is, oh, hey, I'm getting two life insurance policies and naming you as a beneficiary. Not unless that bug was already planted in your brain, right? In any event, Nanny and Samuel reunited. Does anyone believe she really intended to stay away? I feel like she was simply manipulating him into getting those life insurance policies and her leaving was all part of the plan. So anyway, now that those life insurance policies were all taken care of, Nanny got right to work. She baked Samuel a prune cake. Again, what was the deal with people and prunes back then? Was fresh fruit or chocolate just not available? Were people just constipated a lot? I don't get it. Anyway, he ate the prune cake and within 24 hours started having a terrible burning stomach pain. He went to the hospital where he stayed for several weeks recovering from his illness. As it turned out, Nanny had put too much rat poison in the prune cake and Samuel vomited up most of it when his stomach pain started. Nanny's mistake saved his life, at least for a few weeks. When Samuel finally was able to go home, Nanny served him a special meal of pork roast with an after-dinner coffee laced with arsenic, most likely from Nanny's favorite food additive, rat poison. A few hours later, Samuel was dead. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, if it hadn't been for Nanny using too much rat poison in the cake and Samuel's treating physician, Dr. Schwelbein, being curious about Samuel's hospitalization and then death immediately after returning home with a clean bill of health, Nanny likely would have continued her killing spree. But once the autopsy Dr. Schwelbein ordered was complete, Nanny's decades-long murder streak would gratefully come to an end. At first, Nanny denied any wrongdoing. Remember, she claimed a clear conscience when police first asked her about everything. They asked her if she poisoned Samuel, and she said she would never harm her husband. They mentioned that he had a ton of arsenic in his stomach along with the dinner and coffee she'd made him the night before, and brought up Samuel's recent hospital stay after eating her prune cake. They asked if the cake had been poisoned too, and she responded with a giggle, I don't know what you're talking about. Me? Poison? This woman's husband just died, and she was being accused of murdering him, and she's giggling. Can you imagine what the cops were thinking? She was engrossed in a romance magazine called Romantic Hearts at this point, making it tough for the police to get any answers out of her. They finally had to take the magazine away, at which point she really turned on the charm, batting her eyes, smiling, and giggling some more. They spent hours interrogating her, bringing up her other three dead husbands, who all had the same symptoms Samuel had before they died. Finally, she sighed and nodded and said, All right, all right. With another giggle, she admitted to poisoning Samuel's coffee, 
and said she did it because, quote, he wouldn't let me watch my favorite programs on the television, and he made me sleep without the fan on the hottest nights. He was a miser, and, well, what's a woman to do under those conditions, end quote. She then asked if she could have her magazine back. The officer taking her confession, Special Agent Ray Page, told her he wanted her to tell him about her other husbands. She said that she would tell him about her other dead husbands if he promised to give her back her magazine. He agreed, and she winked at him and said, it's a deal. She then proceeded to tell Special Agent Page all about her quest for romance, instead only finding what she called dullards. Can you imagine you're one of the survivors of these men she murdered? And the killer says she killed your loved one because she basically found him to be kind of a nitwit? How awful. The next day, Special Agent Page and other detectives from the Tulsa Police Department traveled to Kansas, North Carolina, and Alabama to exhume Nanny's dead husbands, Frank, Arlie, and Chief, her mother, Lou, her sister, Dovey, her grandson, Robert, and her mother-in-law, Sarah, Arlie's mother. In all of the husband's bodies and in Lou's body, medical examiners found heavy traces of arsenic. The other's bodies didn't contain any toxic substances, but all appeared to have died of asphyxia. The bodies of Nanny's two middle daughters weren't exhumed for autopsy. Now get this. Nanny was already back in the personal ads before she even killed Samuel again, not wanting to waste any time before she could move on to husband number six. Well, shortly after Nanny's arrest, a man named John Keel from North Carolina came forward telling police that he had been corresponding with Nanny after seeing one of her personal ads. She had told him she was a widow and was looking to settle down with a good man. She sent him a prune cake, but he didn't eat it because he didn't like prune cake. He was relieved that he didn't eat it, but in all likelihood, that cake wasn't tainted. After all, why would Nanny kill a man before she could get her claws into him? There would be no benefit there for her. Nonetheless, John Keel was counting his blessings that the relationship hadn't yet gone further with Nanny. As the news got out about what Nanny had done, reporters just had to chat with her first husband, Charlie, who was the only one to get out alive from a marriage to Nanny. When asked whether Nanny had been unfaithful to him, he replied, quote, she was always running off with one man or another, never home, and was about town more than me. And anyway, to tell you the truth, I was glad when she was off. It got to a point where I was afraid to eat anything she cooked. I smelled a rat, end quote. A rat or rat poison? Either way, Charlie certainly lucked out. Nanny was only charged with Samuel's murder, despite confessing to all 11 murders she had committed. I have no idea why this would be. At this point, she was only 50 years old and seemed likely to live long enough to make it to parole if she was convicted, so they couldn't have thought that it would be overkill to prosecute the other murders. And they certainly had the evidence after Nanny's confessions and the autopsies. Nonetheless, she was only held accountable in Oklahoma and only for Samuel's death. When reporters asked her what she thought should happen to her for poisoning Samuel, she smiled and said, quote, Why, anything, anything they care to do is all right by me, end quote. Not surprisingly, there was a question as to her sanity. A woman killed her kids, grandkids, sister, mother, husbands, and mother-in-law 
and then just giggled and smiled about it when she was finally caught. It seems fair to wonder whether this woman had the mental capacity to know right from wrong. She was examined by four different psychiatrists, and they all concluded that she was legally sane and able to stand trial. Her trial was set for June 2, 1955, but on May 17th, she entered a guilty plea instead of going to trial. Judge Elmer Adams sentenced her to life in prison, as women were not sentenced to execution in those days. Nanny giggled as she was taken out of the courtroom. She remained lighthearted even during her prison sentence, at one point joking that she was tired of doing laundry at the prison and questioned that she didn't understand why they wouldn't let her work in the kitchen cooking food for the other prisoners. I have to admit, despite all the horrors of this story, that one did give me a good chuckle. Ten years into her life sentence, Nanny died in prison of leukemia. As for Samuel's life insurance policies, it appears that Nanny's arrest happened before she was able to collect on them. Although Samuel didn't have any descendants due to the tornado that took all of his children and his first wife, I hope his siblings who survived him were able to collect the money at least. Because Samuel voluntarily took out the policies for himself rather than Nanny doing it, the insurance company would likely not be able to rely on a claim of fraud or using the Slayer rule to avoid having to pay on the policy. Unfortunately, it had been so long after the life insurance had been paid out on Nanny's grandson, Robert, that it was most likely too late for the company to recoup what it paid out on that policy. And the same goes for Arlie's house that Nanny most likely burned down. There isn't any information on other life insurance policies or whether any of Nanny's husbands other than Arlie had an estate plan in place. In all likelihood, Nanny's husbands all died intestate, meaning they didn't have a will or trust in place to identify how they wanted their property to be distributed after their deaths. In most states back then, intestacy laws, meaning laws that dictate how a dead person's property gets distributed if there's no will, we're going to give most, if not all, of the person's property to their spouse. This isn't a hard and fast rule, of course, but because most of Nanny's husbands weren't well off, there probably wasn't much for anyone to argue over anyway. And, of course, we know what happened when Arlie left his house to his sister instead of Nanny. I imagine she would have reacted the same way if she didn't inherit from her other husbands. <laughs> It's time for me to give another shout out to Ancestry.com for helping me out with some of the details in this story. There's a lot out there on the internet, and I even relied on some books and newspapers for this one, but I found a lot of discrepancies between dates, places, and even names. Ancestry has actual records that I was able to use to determine things like the fact that Dovey died two years before Arlie and not, as was claimed elsewhere, right after. No one seemed to care enough to publish Arlie's mother's name. Some people mistakenly referred to Robert as Nanny's nephew rather than grandson, and an actual published in-print book stated that Nanny's first husband was named George Fraser, which is obviously incorrect. But I was able to use Ancestry's vital records to verify that Nanny's first husband's name was, in fact, Charlie Braggs. So thank you once again, Ancestry, for helping me make sure the information in my podcast is as thorough and accurate as possible. And no, they're not a sponsor yet. I just really love them.
So what do you think about this story, listeners? Although Nanny collected on at least one life insurance policy and likely inherited money and property by virtue of being married or related to many of her victims, there was no money involved in several of the murders she committed, especially her newborn granddaughter. Was she just a sadistic woman who removed inconvenient people from her life in a horribly sick way, and any money she got out of it was just a bonus? Did she set up the life insurance policy on her grandson because she figured she may as well get paid to do what she already planned to do anyway? And what about that alleged traumatic brain injury? Do you think that actually caused her to murder? Or do you think that was just a convenient excuse? I mean, I know several people who have traumatic brain injuries and as far as I know, they haven't murdered anyone. I'd love to hear what you think about this one. And please join us for our next episode where we'll investigate and explore another intriguing case. This one with a personal connection to someone in my life. Thanks for listening.